It's mid-February and a crowd of about a thousand angry protesters have gathered in Moldova's capital, Chisinau. They're calling for the resignation of the country's president, Maya Sandu. Ever since Russia invaded Ukraine, there have been several demonstrations in Moldova against its Western-friendly government. The protests have been fueled by soaring inflation and led mainly by small opposition parties. I think if our government doesn't know how to rule the country and set regular prices for gas, heating, electricity and food, they should resign. But this time, something's different. Moldovan President Maya Sandu has accused Russia of planning to overthrow her country's government by using foreign saboteurs disguised as anti-government protesters. Could these protests in the former Soviet country be the latest script from Putin's playbook? And does he have the power to change the political direction of Ukraine's neighbour? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Jenny Kleeman. Today, is Moldova next in Putin's sights? I am Tom Kington. I'm the Italy correspondent of The Times. I went to Moldova to report on political and social and geopolitical upheavals in this tiny country, kicking off with a protest that I covered outside the parliament in Chisinau, the capital of Moldova. It was a noisy, angry protest. There's about a thousand people outside the parliament protesting about their home heating bills, claiming that their bills had soared over the winter and uh, they were demanding that the government pay 100% of their bills for December, January and February. And the protest was being led by a woman called Marina Torba, who's the vice president of a party called the Shaw Party. She was whipping up the protesters and actually going into the crowd to collect their unpaid bills. So. She had this massive stack of bills in her hand. It was a very dramatic moment. And she said, I'm going to march into Parliament now, confront the Prime Minister and demand that he pay these bills. So she then went up the steps, disappeared into Parliament. She's an MP, so she could get access. I was looking around at the crowd at that point, trying to kind of figure out who they were. Quite a lot of older people, pensioners, who, as they were telling me, were the people who really couldn't pay those bills because their pensions are pretty small. And a lot of them were Russian speakers. And the translator I was working with that day, who was helping me translate the Vox Pops I was doing, said, yeah, lots of Russian speakers here. And I said, well, before actually hearing them speak, how can you tell? Do they look different? She said, yeah, absolutely, they do. I can see who the Russian speakers are. I said, how can you do that? She said, by the way, they're dressed. And she pointed to three women uh, who were... I suppose the best way to describe them were quite blingy. They were wearing sort of flashy sunglasses, designer sunglasses, and their handbags were kind of glittery with studs on them, quite a lot of uh, spandex going on. And 
I got the idea that these were people who perhaps were dressing after being inspired by the Russian soap operas. They watch quite a lot of Russian soap operas on Moldovan TV, a sign of Russian soft power, which has lasted well beyond Moldova's years as part of the Soviet Union. What was the mood like then among this uh, blingily dressed crowd? They were angry. They were clearly, you know, reacting well to the incitement by um, the woman leading the protest. However, it felt slightly staged. And I was inclined to believe stories that these kind of protests, and there have been plenty last year as well, the numbers were made up also with a helping hand from the Shore Party, which was prepared to pay people to show up. So there was something inauthentic, something a bit dodgy about these protests. I suspect so. I, th- I think that people were having a good time there thinking that they were going to get their 10 euros or whatever at the end of it and uh, head off for lunch. So we've heard about the protest, the different kinds of people at the protest, how they were dressed, taking inspiration from Russian soap operas. But what about Moldova? Tell us about the country. Moldova is a small country. It's the poorest country in Europe, has a population of 2.6 million, which I think is less than a third of the population of London, to give you an idea of just how small it is. Looking back in time, it was once a vassal state of the Ottoman Empire, then part of the Russian Empire, when it was called Bessarabia, before being incorporated into the Kingdom of Romania, and then the Soviet Union, obviously getting its uh, independence when the Soviet Union broke up uh, at the end of the 80s, early 90s. And just to go back to this business of language, during the Soviet Union, Romanian was spoken, but it was written in Cyrillic, which gives you an idea of how important language was, the use of language was, to the Russians. They could understand that Language helps Moldova be on a fault line between East and West, and it's very important to control the language in order to make the country look East rather than looking West towards Romania. Today, the country wants to join the EU, and that is making Russia very nervous uh, and is keeping an eye on Moldova, trying to do whatever it can to stop that happening. You mentioned that it's on a fault line between East and West. Where is it literally on a map? Think Ukraine, go to the bottom left, you'll find Moldova. um, It's just on the Black Sea and move further to the left and you've got Romania. So just quite literally sandwiched between Europe and what lies beyond. Which is, of course, a very interesting place to be in the times in which we're living. What is Moldova's relation to both Russia and Ukraine now? I think in sort of fear of Russia, if you're a part of the Moldovan majority, which would like to move closer to Europe. um, However, there's about 30% of Moldovans who are pro-Russian and uh, are keen to keep those ties with Russia. The relationship with Ukraine, well, a year ago when the war broke out, when Russia invaded Ukraine, there was a a huge wave of Ukrainian refugees sweeping into Moldova, and uh, they were treated extremely well 
Moldovans bent over backwards to put up Ukrainians in their homes. You'd go into parks and find people, you know, saying, I can give you a job because the Ukrainians would gather in parks. Supermarkets were quickly filled with Ukrainians working at the tills. Uh, a lot of those Ukrainians moved on then towards other countries in Western Europe. But I think they've never forgotten the initial uh, outpouring of generosity from Moldovans. And why would 30% of the Moldovan population be pro-Russia? I think it's a question of history. These often older people in the country who grew up in the Soviet Union. So it's a kind of nostalgia fueled by quite a lot of pro-Russian propaganda. And as I mentioned earlier, even the soap operas on TV. And that's the sort of thing that uh, you could imagine swaying a pensioner who's at home, TV on all day, to, to continue to think of Russia as being a sort of kind uncle. And has Moldova had the same issues with contested territories uh, that Russia lays claim to that Ukraine has? Well, I think you're referring to Transnistria here. A pro-Russian breakaway state inside Moldova. Propped up by Moscow, its residents speak Russian, have their own president and currency. If Moldova's small, Transnistria is even smaller. It's a strip of land sandwiched between Moldova and Ukraine. It's about 250 miles long, a population of about 300,000. It's officially part of Moldova. However, when Moldova claimed its independence from Russia back in the early 90s, Transnistria said, no, we'd like to retain our ties with Russia. There was a brief conflict between Moldova and Transnistria, about a thousand people were killed. And to this day, it's remained a kind of a gray zone, officially part of Moldova, but owing its allegiance to Russia. It gets free gas from Russia, which it then craftily turns into electricity, which it sells to Moldova. It's also been over the years, quite a smuggling hub, smuggling of cigarettes and things like that between Moldova and Ukraine. The Russians, when they left, left behind tons and tons, about 20,000 tons of weaponry, which makes it quite a tinderbox. And also, it has a, a small army of about 1,300. Now, that said, apparently, most of that weaponry today is unusable because it's so old. Uh, of the 1,300 soldiers, only about 50 or 100 are actual Russians. The rest maybe have Russian passports, but they're locals. And many people have said that actually the kind of status quo, uh, Transnistria having this sort of strange neither one or the other status has been very favorable to people in Transnistria because they can benefit. They're selling the electricity to Moldova. They're involved in the smuggling. So Whilst it's been seen on the one hand as being a tinderbox, as being something that could provoke Russia into stepping in to try and take it back, uh, on the other hand, the locals, I think, are very happy with things as they are. That said, it's still very much a flashpoint in that you could imagine Russia thinking that it can justify some kind of intervention by saying that the place is under threat, or Moldova saying that it needs to intervene because the Russian threat to intervene is growing. 
So all eyes are on this breakaway region as a flashpoint between Moldova and Russia. Let's go back to the politics in Moldova. These protests are made up of the pro-Russian population and they come at a time of political instability. What is, what is the current political situation? That current political situation has reached fever pitch recently. Everything started when, in February, Ukrainian President Zelensky warned that Russia was planning to send in saboteurs to, to undermine the Moldovan government, perhaps even lead to it being overthrown. We clearly understand that this is one of the Russian steps. The special forces are working there. It's not fake news. That was followed by Maya Sandu, the president of Moldova, confirming this report and saying that Russia was planning to send in undercover saboteurs from Russia, Montenegro, Belarus and Serbia to create havoc. The plan for the next period involves actions involving saboteurs with military training, dressed in civilian clothes, who would undertake violent actions, attack government buildings and take hostages. By organizing violent actions disguised as protests of the so-called opposition, a change of power in Chisinau is pursued. This all coincided with reports of Russian missiles flying through Moldovan airspace on their way to Ukraine, which created uh, quite a lot of panic. People started talking about the Shore Party demonstrations last year, which got quite, not violent, but uh, there were reports that some of the demonstrators were packing knives, packing guns, uh, reports of police cars being set on fire. So people were saying that could get uh, ramped up again. And this time, if it's being organized by saboteurs coming in from uh, outside the country, things could get quite nasty. Who exactly are these so-called saboteurs from outside the country? What's their motive? And what's Putin's endgame? That's coming up after this. I'm Louise Callahan, a foreign correspondent for The Sunday Times. I work from the front line of international politics and war, bringing you stories from Ukraine to Syria and Yemen. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tom, I want to break this down into small pieces so we can understand what is going on. First of all, back to the protests, Tom. What are they specifically about? Well, ostensibly, this is about the cost of living. So I spoke to one demonstrator, a woman called Domnika. She said her pension was 2,400 leos a month. That's the Moldovan currency. But her heating bill was 2,000. So almost gobbling up her entire pension. Put it in sterling, think the average heating bill over the winter was £90 a month, and that's just short of the minimum pension of £100. Now, one of the reasons that the prices went up was because Russia had reduced its gas supply to Moldova, which uh, prompted suggestions that what Russia was doing, and this is, this is typical Russian behaviour, was trying to provoke a crisis, which it could then exploit by ordering its proxies in, or saboteurs, you you name it, to take advantage of a situation it had created. Now, I say that that ostensibly was the reason for the demonstration, but if we look at this party, this political party which was behind the demonstrations, this is a party um, run by a guy called Ilan Shaw, a Moldovan oligarch, sort of larger-than-life character in his hometown. He built an amusement park which he opened for free to Moldovans. At first glance, Orge seems like a model town. There's free transportation. It even has its own theme park, free to visit, with its own city beach. And the man behind this regeneration is former mayor Ilan Shor, one of Moldova's most famous oligarchs. But right now, he's hiding out as a fugitive in Israel. Uh, He has dual Moldovan and Israeli nationality. And that's following his conviction for embezzlement. He was um, seen as being part of uh, an operation which was behind the theft of $1 billion from Moldovan banks in 2014, which at the time was one-eighth of the country's GDP, so a lot of money. Last year, he was put on a sanction list by the UK and the US after he had fleed Moldova in 2019. And if we look at the U.S. sanction, he was placed on sanctions by the U.S. last year, accused of supporting Vladimir Putin's, and I quote, persistent malign influence campaigns and systemic corruption in Moldova. Uh, He's also married to a Russian pop singer, and he was behind six TV channels which were accused of airing pro-Russian disinformation. Those, those TV channels were shut down last year. And most recently, he's been organising by remote control via social media these protests that are being held outside parliament. So he's, he's in Israel, but he's very much still involved in Moldovan politics. I, I said to one of the protesters, I said... How can you support this guy? He's been convicted of stealing a large amount of money from you, effectively, as a Moldovan 
taxpayer. And, and the woman said, oh, he was young at the time. Maybe he didn't know what he was doing. So it was a sort of whitewashing of his reputation. His vice president, Marina Tauber, who was leading the protest, I approached her after, after she'd come out of parliament and saying that uh, the prime minister had not accepted those bills. He wasn't going to pay those bills. And I, and I said, look, what are you trying to do here? You're trying to bring down the government. And she said, well, Maya Sandu, who the president of Moldova, she's the biggest threat to the stability of this country. She wants Moldova in the war. So this is a colourful character who's had quite a lot of impact but is it true to say that he has had impact politically? I mean, how, how significant is his party, the Shaw Party, in the political landscape of Moldova? They're a small party. They don't have many MPs. I think what people see as the risk is that um, they could align with other parties, the socialists, for example, who have pro-Russian leanings and other forces in Moldovan politics. If they were able to perhaps prompt early elections through their protests, people are wondering, well, okay, fair enough. It doesn't look like on paper Moldovan parties who are pro-Russian would be able to actually form a government and take Moldova over, over to Russia's side. But it's possible there are politicians who talk a pro-EU line, but once in government would would change their tune. We just don't know. So there's quite a lot of uncertainty, suspicion of the true intentions of politicians. And I think that has raised the alarm about what Ilan Shaw is up to. And does the government really share in that sense of alarm? Absolutely. When I left the demonstration, I, w I went into parliament and I spoke to a young MP called Radu Marian, uh, 32, and like many of the younger generation of politicians right across Eastern Europe. He's been abroad, he studied in Edinburgh, and he, he didn't pull any punches. He, he said, the opposition is not a true opposition. They're basically Russian agents. Russian agents, so saboteurs trying to undermine democracy in Moldova. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's kind of the Russian playbook across Eastern Europe. I last year was in Bulgaria, where plenty of accusations against local oligarchs being corrupt, being paid for by Russia, going up against this younger generation of emigres who'd come back, who've l l worked and studied in the West, and would like to take, in that case, Bulgaria closer to, to Europe. I had a really interesting interview last year with the then Prime Minister of Bulgaria, Kirill Petkov, who uh, had been abroad, he was Harvard educated, and he said that he had learned one big lesson about fighting corruption. He said at the start, we, we didn't really understand that corruption and Russian influence in Bulgaria were the same thing. He said corruption is Moscow's best foreign policy instrument. And it makes sense. If you are coming into a country, you're looking for people you can back who can undermine the democratic government. Corrupt oligarchs um, are kind of good candidates because, first of all, being shady themselves, they will help you indulge in your shady enterprise of trying to undermine things. And secondly, it's always good to work with people like that because they're blackmailable. 
So you always have pressure over them. And the more you get them to do nefarious things, the more you have the dirt on them if you ever need to put pressure on them. So that's kind of the Russian playbook as described to me last year in Bulgaria, had been the case over previous years. And I saw a very similar model at work in Moldova. Now let's look at the bigger picture in terms of international reaction. Following these protests, what has the US said? Have they made any approaches, any gestures of solidarity with Moldova? There's been plenty of support. I think that it's very high uh, on the agenda in Washington and in, in, in capitals around Europe that Moldova needs to be visibly and vocally supported. The country is not, however, a member of NATO. So that kind of automatic fail-safe Article 5 uh, defending countries, NATO members which are attacked, that doesn't apply here. What was interesting to see in the country was the way that the EU has set up shop there. Now, Moldova is really wanting to become a member of the EU, but the EU is all, already quite present with various sort of programs for economic assistance. And I had a very interesting day, not this time around, but when I was in the country last year, just after the invasion, when I traveled to Transnistria and I got to a, a very small town called Molovata Nua, which was basically the last place you got to before you got into Transnistria. And I met the mayor and there was a, a European Union funded cultural centre and doctor's office in the town, the EU flag flying, a nice paved road. And as I then proceeded along that paved road into Transnistria, the next town I got to called Rogi was, was like a completely different universe. So um, there I suddenly was what felt like a, a, the last outpost of, of Russia, where the street signs switched to Russian, they got the free gas, but the road isn't paved suddenly. And I walked into a shop and the woman was saying, don't worry about Russia, they're our friends, they'll look after us. So again, there was this sense of really just being on that fault line with the EU having a strong pr presence on one, one side and Russia being that, that generous uncle handing over that free gas just about 500 yards down the road. Do you think it's possible that Putin could annex Moldova without ever having to invade the country? Well, that takes us back to the question of whether these pro-Russian forces in Moldova can do enough to force early elections, to win an election, to get some kind of change forth through with their protests. Analysts I've spoken to are doubtful that can work. But that then leads on to the next question. Perhaps people like Putin don't feel that they could flip the government in Moldova to their advantage. But what they're happy about is just making things really difficult for any government which is pro-European. Just really throwing spanner after spanner in the works, whether it's through bankrolling corrupt oligarchs, whether it's by funding protests against the government, just screwing everything up and slowing down what many Moldovans would hope would be a slow process towards becoming an EU member. And the, the Russians see this as a long game, and they would just think, as we've done across Eastern Europe, let's just, just slow that process down and make trouble. So it's not so much about Putin securing his legacy by grabbing as much land as possible. It's more about destabilising any country near Russia 
that seems to be becoming more pro-Europe? I think so. I think we needn't see this in in apocalyptic terms. The paratrooper is going to land next Tuesday. I think we need to see it just in terms of of that, yeah, that just sort of jamming things up, making sure things don't work and uh, making a country weak, which in turn makes it even more vulnerable to the influence of Russian players. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, Jenny Kleeman, and my guest, The Times' correspondent in Europe, Tom Kington. You can find all of Tom's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer was Priyanka Deladia, the executive producer was Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you'd like to find out more about this story, search The Times' view on Russia and Moldova, plotting a coup. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it on social media and give us a like? It helps others find us. Thanks for listening.